0: Hi there, I'm Byron Reese, and this is the Agora Podcast. Today my guest is Stephen Wolfram. He almost needs no introduction, and it's hard to introduce him because he's done so many things. Maybe just three uh, out of the many, he created Mathematica, which is an entire programming ecosystem at this point. He created, he wrote a book called A New Kind of Science, which is a new kind of science that he invented. And, uh, and he has something called Wolfram Alpha, which is an answer engine that he created as well. I've known him for many years. It's, it's always a great conversation with him, and I'm grateful that he's joining us on the podcast. Stephen Wolfram.
1: Welcome to the Agora Podcast with Byron Reese as he talks with great minds about what they're working on, what problems they're solving, and what
0: passions drive them forward. Enjoy the show. I've been reading lately, listening to your thoughts on AI governance, And you made some really interesting observations. You said you were disappointed uh, with the state of kind of the conversation around it, that it was a nexus of three issues, which are ethics, policy, and technology. And there weren't people who kind of mastered all of those. And you felt like you knew a little bit about each of them, uh, but weren't really like the guy that was your thing that you were going to do. Did I represent
1: all of that correctly? Is that how you feel? More or less, yeah. It's kind of an evolving thing, week by week, month by month, so to speak. I mean, I'm I'm kind of uh, uh, I'm a rank amateur, but it's uh, it's not clear, you know, that there's a that there's an area for professionals. You know, the thing I realized recently is philosophy was, you know, is you quickly sort of go into issues that are typical sort of political philosophy type issues. And I I was realizing this is a time when that all matters. I was realizing when did that last matter? And, you know, 1600s, 1700s, people were inventing kind of modern democracy. People really cared about what, you know, a bunch of these political philosophers had to say about that. I think we're back at a time when one actually has to think and think in a sort of deep philosophical way. And, I you know don't have the answers, but I think that the idea that there's kind of a a quick solution and we're just going to put you know a few little technology hacks in here and there and uh, you know and it's all going to go fine is is you know there's deeper thinking that has to go on. I mean, give you an example of something I was was realizing recently. It's um, you know we keep on people keep on talking about we got an AI we're going to put some sort of constitution around what the AI might do or whatever else, but we're thinking about that as an AI. My guess is that uh, one of the the things that, you know, if we look at a humans and we say, let's say there was just one human in the world, how would we get that one human to sort of do the right thing? It's very hard to see how that would work. When we have human society, there are many more kinds of checks and balances that exist in the way that people want to be kind of connected into the society and so on, the way that, uh, you know, that, that has an effect. Like, for example, if you imagine the AIs and you say, you know, does an AI have an internal belief that it should survive? You know, we humans have sort of a built-in belief that comes from a few billion years of us having sort of struggled for life in biological evolution. We have a built-in instinct that we should survive. And, oh, at least most people do. And I think that the, uh, Uh, And that means that certain kinds of things that say, oh, well, if you do this or that bad thing, you won't survive or you won't survive happily or whatever else, that becomes a a real reason for us to do the right thing, so to speak. But for an AI, as it is right now, it's kind of like, well, unless we insert into the AIs an instinct for survival, which, you know, seems very Terminator-like and very scary, so to speak, and is probably the wrong thing. If we, we just say, okay, AIs, you're going to be fed the thing that we just got from a couple of billionaires of biological evolution, we want you to think you should survive, and therefore you shouldn't do the wrong thing, because otherwise we're going to switch you off type thing. That's, you know, that's one approach. Another approach which I was thinking about recently is what if there's a whole society of AIs, and a large part of the value of an AI is that it has connections to all these other AIs. And if the AI kind of does things which the collection of AIs, the society of AIs, thinks are a bad idea, then that AI gets sort of ostracized from that society, kind of naturally because those other AIs are trying to do things where ultimately, sort of at the edge of the AI network, somebody is going to trust that they did the right thing and so on. So it's kind of a, a, uh, you know, it's, it's one of these things where if you have the society of AIs, you get a different set of possibilities for how you think about, you know, sort of uh, determining what the AIs do than you do if you have the one AI controlled by some sort of uh, set of, you know, programming rules or something about the AI, which, by the way, I think that is a doomed concept. I mean, the idea that we'll write down rules that say exactly what the AI should do, kind of the whole computational irreducibility story and common sense basically tells you there's always unexpected stuff that's going to happen. You're never going to be able to get a set of rules that allow the AI to do things that you want the AI to do because they're going to be valuable and helpful, but always guarantee to never let the AI do the wrong thing, so to speak. But
0: I think that, well, yeah. I don't I don't have a silver bullet kind of answer, but I do have a, a, way, a way to frame it, I think, that's useful for me, which is, you know, we have... You talk about, well, we're going to have to decide, should it run over the llamas or the two dogs? You know, we're going to have to figure all that out. The thing about it is we have 400 years of English common law and case law already addressing all of those kinds of things. And that's based on Roman law, which goes back to Homer's code like and Justinian's law. So we have actually thousands of years of thinking about this with incredible nuance and with tons of case law of every kind of thing. And I think the idea that somehow we have to put all that aside and that this is new is incorrect and so the way i think about it is when you ask people like oh think about what it would be for an ai that's very alien to them because they don't know what that is so i think it's all going to boil down to analogies that we use to tap into all of that common law history so let me let me just say one real quickly which is i think that sometimes ai is a zombie Sometimes it's a malevolent genie, sometimes it's a calculator, and sometimes it's a stick of dynamite. Let me just take one of those, a malevolent genie. So you know the genie thing, which is, uh, you know, you get three wishes and like every wish you make uh, somehow gets twisted. So it's it's obeying it, but in a way you did not intend. And that's your computational irreducibility idea that you can't foresee what the genie's gonna do. And you say, okay, well, we have case law about that. Did, were you negligent in how you programmed it or could you have foreseen that? And and so you tap into all of that history. Likewise, if we think of the AI as a zombie, as something you tell it what to do and it goes and does something bad, well, we have laws about that. Like we we know how to assign responsibility. We know who has to pay damages and, and all of that. And finally, uh, what was what was the other one? Um, oh, a stick of dynamite. Okay. Stick of dynamite has legitimate uses. People can take that stick of dynamite and do illegitimate things with it. And you know, is that the dynamite manufacturer's problem or is it the person who did it? And so I think it's gonna be about finding the analogies that allow us to tap into um, all of that thousands of years of thought we have and apply it to this thing, which if you just say, oh, it's an AI, it's like, well, I don't know anything about that, but I, I can know what I would do about a malevolent genie or a stick of dynamite or all of that. So that's how I would approach it. What is, what is at a gut level, does that resonate with you or not? Well, clearly you need to, you know, what? what
1: is ethics? What is kind of the things we want to have happen? We humans want to have happen in the world. What you just described, the huge volume of, of previous legal work, that is the best representation we probably have of what we want to have happen in the world. It's not completely the story of what we want to have happen in the world. We can see that in, I don't know, You know, if you decide, let's say that, uh, well, for example, you know, you you put things out in social media. You know, I tend to think you should let anything go out that is within the law as the law has been written. But some people don't think that. It's, um, uh, you know, some people think one has to do things that are aspirational, which the law is mostly not about. The law is mostly about what you can't do. It's not what you should do, so to speak. So, but I agree that, that that's the encapsulation of what we humans have discovered we're happy with or works or something for human-to-human interaction.
0: Knowing... Which, by the way, is culturally sensitive too, right? The Chinese AI would therefore behave according to Absolutely. that case history. And, and somebody in Iceland and all that. So you actually solve all of those problems. Instead of having to solve for the world, you're saying the of oh. overarching Rushing yeah you're never going to solve it for the world that's that's a hopeless
1: idea i mean the idea that there is a a you know a perfect ethics and set of principles that apply to everybody and everything in the world it's just not i mean fortunately because if we did it that way let's say we did it that way it's a global set of rules then let's say we got one of them wrong you know then we're screwed basically because there's no you know, oh, this country didn't make it and some other one did. It's like the whole, you know, the whole species just got, you know, went off track, so to speak. So I think, you know, I think that I completely agree that what what makes sense in country X is going to be different from what makes sense in country Y. Potentially what makes sense in online community X is different from what makes sense in online community Y and so on. But I think the real question is how do you take laws and so on which have been set up for human-to-human interaction and how do you translate them to AIs? Because, you know, you can say things like, well, every AI has to have an owner. And the laws must be, you know, the, the principles of operation of the AI must redound to the owner somehow. Well, you know, for example, a place where that's not working is people saying, I'm creating this piece of art with AI and I want to be the one who's getting credit for that art. People say, no, 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 that can't really be right. I don't, I don't know what I think about that, but that's, that's an example of where one's teasing apart what sort of the AI just did it for itself. Now, another thing is, you know, in the world of computational irreducibility, the AI does something nobody could have expected. You couldn't know it was going to do that. But the question is, but you, the owner, are, you know, you have certain... Responsibilities now, you know, if you say I'm keeping a dog and the dog will occasionally do crazy things, there's a you know well-established set of principles about what you can reasonably do if you're keeping a dog and so on. I don't think we have that. You know, if we could develop those kinds of ideas around AIs, I think that would be a fine thing. I think that's not a uh, you know. I don't see quite how to do that. I don't see how to attach. You know, what you're basically suggesting is. You know the reason that laws work, I think, is because in the end, people don't want to be punished for breaking the law. But if you don't have a person in the loop, if you don't have a thing that has skin it cares about in the game, I don't know how you make that work. And that's <laughs> that that seems to me to be the problem because if you uh, you know, one thing you can say is every AI is attached to an owner. Aww. that's a possibility. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's you know, if you believe that, that an AI is just an appendage of its owner. I think you have. I'm not sure if that works. I mean, I, I'm not sure that that. I think people don't really quite believe that that works. Like, who's the owner of the self-driving car? Is it the owner, the person who has the titles of the car? Is it the software company or the hard, you know, or the car company that made the thing? If it's the person who happens to have the title to the car, they're going to say, "But I don't know why it did that. I have no control over this." You know, how can you hold me liable for something that is, you know, completely out of my control? That doesn't make any sense. And,
0: yeah, go ahead. You know, when when the chat GPT thing happened and the LLMs all happened, I could tell you were super excited. I was super excited. I, th- I think the world kind of as a whole, I have seen like this enormous amount of fear that has come with it. And, you know, when I think about the um, that open letter from the Future of Life, you know, uh, that all those people signed, it has a line in it. It says, powerful AI systems should be developed only once we are confident that their effects will be positive and their risks will be manageable. And when I saw that, I thought there's never been a technology that could pass that test. The printing press couldn't pass it. That no, no, that's the, that, the that, Internet... line, that line is a great example of what you raised at the beginning
1: is, like, who's actually thinking about that stuff? That line is not a line that people who actually think about this in any serious, deep way could seriously write.
0: The, the internet wouldn't even pass it today. I'm not even sure if unbalanced it is positive. So where do yeah. you think this enormous amount of fear comes from?
1: Well, I think, I think it was a shock. ChatGPT was a shock yeah. to everybody, including mm-hmm. the people who built it. Nobody knew it was going to work this well. <laughs> and, you know, I think my best technological analogy is probably the telephone, where Mm -hmm. people had known since the early 1800s, you know, in principle, you can transmit kind of sound through electrical wires. But it never got to the point where you could actually understand what somebody was saying at the other end. And then, you know, Alexander Graham Bell sort of hacked together what was needed. And suddenly, you could, you know, it was good enough that you could understand it. So similarly here, we had, you know, language models, That could babble away and say things that were sort of syntactically correct. They didn't really make much sense and they weren't that interesting. And then suddenly, you know, things reached the point nobody really understood why, suddenly it reached this threshold where it started to write sentient text and be able to do useful textual things. To me that was, you know, that's an exciting scientific uh, moment that probably reflects something about language that we didn't really understand probably ref- reflects the fact that there's more of a kind of semantic grammar, more structure to the meaning construction of language than we imagined. It's something where I kind of feel like it's almost embarrassing. It's like Aristotle almost started talking about this. He got his, he got logic, and he almost started talking about things that would sort of generalize logic to other kinds of formalized thinking, but he didn't really make more progress on that. And it's been kind of dropped for a couple of thousand years. And now this this AI comes along is kind of waving this big flag saying, yes, you know, human language actually does have more structure than you thought. And I think that's, uh, you know, to me, that was sort of an, an exciting scientific thing. But I think also, you know, for people in general, it was just like it was a moment when something happened. It wasn't a gradual thing. It was a big surprise. It was something where there had been this sort of belief that kind of the knowledge worker class was immune to any kind of automation. You know, who's going to automate? writing the brief or writing the essay or the report Mm -hmm. and then suddenly it was like oh this is going to get automated now probably Mm -hmm. if people Mm -hmm. had followed up post-aristotle everybody would have known that that was going to get automated but we didn't Mm -hmm. so it was kind of a big surprise and when you see that you're like oh my gosh what else is going to get automated
0: you know the thing the thing is is that you know i've had podcasts and i've had people come on for 10 years saying you know oh we're going to lose all these jobs it's going to happen any minute and as far as I can tell, I can't think of a single job that's been lost, a single one that's been eliminated in the last five to ten years. Uh-huh. Not one. And yeah. I've spent a long time trying to figure out the half life of a job, and I think it's fifty years. I think we lose half of our jobs every fifty years. And I think it's great because it's we we create new jobs at the top, destroy ones at the bottom, and everybody shifts up. And that's how come we maintain full employment and rising wages. Uh and I actually get a sense it's not it doesn't seem to be as fast to me as it has been, can do you have that sense? Everybody's always like, oh my gosh, this time is different. Okay. But do you have any sense, can you think of any jobs that have been eliminated in the last five or 10 years?
1: You know, I did a bit of a study, you know, a few months ago of looking at the last 150 years of jobs in the U.S. You perhaps have done similar studies. <laughs> you know, there's, there's data going back to the 18, about 1850 of, you know, <laughs> you have to reclassify, you know, the jobs that The name, you know, a chain man, for example, that job category doesn't exist anymore. You know, Uh that job has been lost. That was a person who helped surveyors with chains and so on. But, you know, what you find over and over again there is you find something which was a big job category like agriculture and it disappears. But the very automation of that job category creates the possibility of many new categories of, you know, people having. I don't know, food distribution, you know, companies and people doing this and that and the other. I mean, I, you know, what I think one sees, and, and I think one sees it around the world, is that the more developed an economy gets, the more fragmented the kinds of jobs that exist get. And I think, you know, with this automation, I have no doubt the same thing will happen. No doubt that there'll be a bunch of new categories of jobs, you know, whether they're prompt engineers and AI psychologists, or whether they're people doing, uh, I don't know, you know, Auditing for of AI ness of things, or whether they're AI philosophers or whatever else, they're going to be a bunch of new job categories created. And I think the way to think about it is that this question about you know you have a job that gets very well defined, it gets very mechanical, and once it's very mechanical, it can be automated, and it is eventually automated. And then there are jobs that open up where they involve choice, you know, where somebody has to decide what exactly is. You know, you're a prompt engineer. What kind of thing do you want to achieve? Or you're you're an AI ethicist. What do you want to achieve? There's a bunch of choices that have to be made, which are necessarily human, and and so that ends up being a thing that requires you know you have to pour humans into that. You don't, and, and eventually over time, perhaps that job gets well enough defined that it can be automated, and then you go through the cycle again. But yeah, I, I agree with you that I mean there certainly are. I, I you know from the job categories from 1850 and so on. There definitely are categories that just don't exist i don't even know what mm-hmm. they are anymore. but but they you know as a as a broader thing they you know what what happened i think repeatedly is something got automated and in its wake a bunch of new opportunities were opened up which create new jobs and in the end the place where humans are needed is where human choice is needed
0: mm-hmm. you said in a recent interview that um these advances are kind of step functions that we got image recognition down and then it hasn't really gone. And then we had the LLMs and, and yeah, they're going to get better, but it's not going to it doesn't necessarily be that. Do you think the gating factor in that is the, the minuscule size of the internet? Like if the internet had a hundred times more history of you know, blog posts and usenet that a hundred times as much, would it be qualitatively Better or is it like no? We have enough
1: data. Well, I mean, there is more. You know, there's 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 archival internet stuff that hasn't been used in the training of LLMs. There's and there's you know there's the uh, uh, you know deep web and so on, which is probably a hundred times, and the you know the archival stuff is probably at least ten times what's been used in the training so far. So there's you know there's a couple of orders of magnitude more. I will be surprised if it's qualitatively different. I think what's happened here is the LLM has sort of discovered this kind of semantic grammar. The that I don't think it's that complicated. I think its way of implementing the semantic grammar is probably rather inefficient, but at least it's managed to discover it. I mean, imagine you were discovering logic. You know you could go through, you know, Aristotle could have gone through I don't know how many speeches he listened to to come up with logic, so to speak. you know, maybe it was a thousand. But once you've got it, you can throw all that away and it's just here it is it's a little formalism it tells you what arguments make sense and so on and uh i think this is sort of the same way that there's a certain set of things that are the the canon of human language and common sense that really aren't that large and then there's a lot of facts in the world and you know i guess i probably have a better sense than most people of of uh, you know what those are because you know we built the biggest system that that uh, deals with those things and, you know, it's, there are a lot of facts in the world, but they're, uh, you know, it's, it's manageable with our computer systems and it's, it's something where, so I don't, I don't think, you know, saying let's get even more text, let's get even more, uh, you know, it's going to be more of the same. I think, I don't think there's going to be any kind of, uh, uh, you know, wow. And by the way, we can see that to some extent in places where we can generate synthetic results, where like in math theorems or something like this, it doesn't seem to be, you know, there's a certain kernel of how humans pick their math theorems or whatever, and then going beyond that and saying, let's throw in a gazillion more. Well, actually, the other issue with that is that as soon as we're, uh, you know, that people say, what will the AIs do? You know, let's say we let the AIs kind of have their, have their head do whatever they want to do. What will they do? Well, they'll do all kinds of things, potentially. The question is, to what extent are those things aligned with what we humans Even recognize and care about, or are the AIs going off and generating all this amazing computational art, which to us just looks like a bunch of random pixels, Um, and you know that that it's the modern, it's the ultra modern art, so to speak, that is that we don't yet understand, and the AIs just went off and generated it, and it doesn't relate to anything we care about. And I think that's you know when people say what will the AIs choose to do, well there's sort of an infinite space of things. You know, one of, I did this study recently looking at generative AI uh, kind of imagery and uh, asking the question, what fraction of the space of images that can be generated by a generative AI that's been trained on human images? what fraction of those images are associated with concepts that we actually have so far? Like, you know, I had the example of a cat in a party hat. There's a kind of island in this sort of space of possible images that we recognize as something like that. So my estimate is that about one part in 10 to the 600 of the space of possible images com- consistent with the kinds of things, even consistent with the kinds of things that we humans have put on the web and so on. Only one part in 10 to the 600 are kind of concepts that we've already got names for. Everything else is kind of this interconcept space of things that we humans have never explored, don't have words for, you know, we might in the future, our civilization might, you know, go in a direction where yes, that counts as art now, which it didn't before, so to speak. But you know, there's a there's an awful lot of room there, and there's an awful lot of room for the AIs to go off and do things that are sort of sort of in, uh, consistent within themselves, but which have kind of no
0: attachment, resonance, connection to us humans. All right, <clears throat> two question, two two final questions. You know, there's this long been this debate about the nature of language, whether it's innate, which is kind of the Chomsky view, uh, or whether it's like completely created. I'm a a Chomsky. I think I I follow that way. And I think that chat GPT, broadly speaking, would support it. Because I only say that based on what you just said, which is evidently there's a structure to it that that we were maybe not quite privy to. Would you? Yeah, no, absolutely.
1: I think that, um, you know, if you have a thing that is basically a neural net that has a certain way of operating, it's going to have certain kinds of things that it can deal with. And, you know, that includes language as we set it up. And, you know, whether there is a... Uh, I don't know whether we... You know, I, I can't tell you that language as we have set it up is the only conceivable way of achieving that kind of communication. But I think it is the case that that way of... you know. Given a neural net, I don't know how many different ways there are it could be set up. But it's, you know, that's another constraint on how it's set up. I mean, I think the thing about language, for example, composability in language, the fact that there are words that can be taken out, disembodied, and stuck in somewhere else and still are useful, isn't far from obvious. The fact that that, but it is incredibly fundamental to the way that our kind of thinking processes seem to work. And if you don't allow that, if you say every word is its own thing, you'll never, the same word will never mean the same thing twice. You've kind of, you know, you've got something very different from our current way of, of communicating and so on. You know, I, I think at a very sort of uh, weird kind of conceptual level, I've kind of realized that the way that particles like electrons work in, in space-time, in the physical universe, and they kind of transmit sort of information from one place to another in the physical universe, I kind of see words and these kind of disembodied sort of things that can are a way of sort of transmitting information across rural space. I mean, an electron, what's notable about it is you'd have an electron in one place, you move it to another place, it's still kind of the same electron. It's not obvious it would work that way. And similarly, when you try and move a concept from your mind to mine, we do it using these packaged, things like well we, these packaged concepts when you try and move a thought from your mind to mine that you package that thought up in these discrete concept things that are things like words which are sort of robust enough to travel without change through real space and then be deployed in a different mind and i think that's uh you know that that's kind of my my picture of what's going on and you know that that is implementable in a neural net i can't tell you what other kinds of things like that might be implementable in a neural net? But there are
0: surely constraints along those lines. I recently wrote an article. I haven't I haven't published it yet. Called the four billion year history of Chat GPT, and what it posits is that you know there, for for three and a half billion years, the only place we stored information was in was DNA. That was the only place to store information, and then we invented brains, and for five hundred million years, we had the second storage thing, which was faster and and more. Um, could hold more and then we got writing we got speech which was a way to transmit information then we got writing which was a even a a better way to to store it then we got books and we got libraries then we got cheap books and and each of these is like this stuff because you see civilization and all of that but the inherent problem with the library is uh at some point a million more books it, it just you know you you can't access them all and it seems to me what these LLMs are, the, the reason they're significant. You remember when the internet first came out, we had directories, not search engines. We had directories, which treated them as libraries. Every website had an entry. Then we had search engines, which the unit was a page and find pages. It, it seems to me that these large language models are a form of synthesis where it brings all that information back. So if I am like, what's the difference between cold and flu and Google? It gives me a million results, which I don't want a million results. I want one result. And it seems like, to me, that's the kind of philosophical significance of these LLMs is they try to consolidate all the information so you get just one answer and not a million. Do you? Well, I think there's, there's something to that. I
1: mean, I, I tend to think, and perhaps because of, some of my life working on it, that kind of the computational language idea, sort of formalizing the world in, in a computational formalism is a pretty significant thing. I mean, I think that, you know, in your sort of long history of how one stores knowledge, uh, you know, I think the, the 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 invention of language, originally by our species, or give or take, um, was uh, you know that was pretty significant because it allowed one to sort of formalize things about the world rather than just pointing at that pointing at that thing. You could say a rock, and you had an abstract representation of a rock. And then we got things like logic and we got mathematics, which is another kind of type of formalization of the world. I mean, I claim that computational language, while not yet, uh, you know, properly appreciated, is kind of a very important formalization of the world. And I think that LLMs are, you know, they're a slightly different thing. They are, you know, it's like, well, you can use logic and mathematics, and you can conclude things about the world that are not quite the same as what a person would conclude kind of off the top of their head. Um, You know, that's, that's, um, what LLMs are doing is kind of doing what humans do quickly, so to speak. They're not doing what we've now learned formalism can do in a giant tower, so to speak. But in terms of, you know, RLM's a good encapsulation of the average human and what the average human knows and how the average human thinks about things, the answer is yes, basically. I mean, it, it you know, and and I think probably, uh, you know, there's a, it's an interesting point that there are things where you say, "Well, what does the, what's the average conclusion?" Now, I found it very useful to to be able to go to an LLM and say, "Hey, what's the you know what's the conventional wisdom about this?" Uh, you know what we don't yet see in LLMs is what's the spread of wisdom, so to speak. LLMs right now are concentrating on the kind of statistical average of this is the conventional wisdom, so to speak. Um, and probably with similar methodology, we'll be able to see something. About the distribution of of conclusions and things like this, but I think you know I I, I kind of well I, I I tend to think that what we've got in an LLM is a good encapsulation of the conventional human, so to speak. One of the things that happened over the last three hundred years, two thousand years, or whatever, is that we realized that there was this kind of comput- ultimately computational idea of formalism that lets us go beyond what is the mere human capability. And what you know the issue with that is it's both it allows us to build tall towers that are far beyond what we can do with our minds, but also those towers may be things where we say, "Well, that's a tower, I don't care about that tower that's a you know that's a separate issue is whether the towers we build that way are towers that we humans, with the current state of what we're like as humans with brains and our neural nets and so on, whether what you know we might not care about those things maybe in some future human that is sort of fused with this kind of computational tower will be like of course you care about that you know we we you know because somewhere in the thing that we count as us is a thing that contains that kind of computational capability in addition to containing our sort of base neural kinds of
0: capabilities Wow, that was great. I love talking to Stephen Wolfram. This is probably my seventh interview with him. And every time I learn so much. I thank you so much for listening. Please share this with anybody you think might enjoy it as well. Be sure to like or follow us. I'm Byron Reese. This is the Agora Podcast. And goodbye.
1: If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to like, comment, and subscribe so that more folks like you can become a part of the Agora. Visit ByronReese.com for more information about each episode and to learn about
0: Byron's forthcoming book, We Are Agora.